Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, this morning we're considering the same text we did last week, which is Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 29. So let's read them together. This is the Word of God. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. God our Father, we know that apart from your Spirit we can understand nothing, we can receive nothing, we can believe nothing, we can obey nothing. And so we cry out to you and pray by your Spirit, make us in the full sense of the word, your saints, your children, your disciples, who bring glory to your name on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why are we spending two weeks on three verses? (laughs) And we could spend a lot more than two weeks on these three verses. It's because think what the Bible teaches about these verses and what Jesus is saying here is so extremely counterintuitive to, number one, what we think we see when we look around. And we see the forces of evil increasing, and we see the church weakening. And it's also counterintuitive really to kind of our recent evangelical heritage of, of the ways of understanding these things. Um, and, and I get that. It's very counterintuitive, and so that's why I'm breaking it down into two messages and and really could take a lot more than this, because I think what the Bible teaches is so very different than uh, what we tend to think and and what we have uh, tended to think for quite some time as evangelicals. And so there's a whole paradigm shift involved in, I think, coming from where we are to uh, what Scripture's teach on this and what Jesus, I think, is saying here. And I just want to say that if you're in the middle of that, if you're, this is new, if you're laboring through this, if you're searching through the scriptures in this, do it prayerfully, do it humbly, and be patient. It takes time. It's kind of like one of those pictures where, you know, it's like thousands of little fish swimming in the ocean, but then there's a tiger's head inside the fish. You know, until you see it, you don't see it. And just straining really hard to see it. Doesn't really help. Be patient. uh, Be prayerful. And I just want to encourage you in this. Even though it seems so strange to us today as evangelicals, this view did not seem strange to our forefathers and our foremothers who first settled America. Whom we love to look back to. You know, and and to claim the Christian heritage, which really laid the foundations uh, for this uh, country. 
the vast majority of them and the generations that followed them in the 1600s and the early 1700s believed the view that I'm trying to set forth for you. And so I'm hoping that just that fact and the fact that they were so powerful for Christ with so few numbers and so few resources, Jesus used them to change the world in a way that we would only hope to be privileged to do today. With all of our numbers and all of our vast resources, they were so much more potent than we are. And so I hope that just that fact would, would and respect for that heritage and those who came before us would, would make you go, you know what, maybe, maybe we need to be open. Maybe we need to open to the fact, I mean, maybe they had it right. Maybe we have it wrong and we need to at least make sure we understand uh, what they believe. And so I just want to encourage you in that. And if you're slogging through this, I mean, if you're wherever you are in this, at the front end, in the middle of it, near the end of it, if uh, I'd love to spend some time with you about this. You don't have to do it yourself. I would love to talk with you, spend some time with you, go through the scriptures with you, wherever you are, because let me tell you, I didn't start out as a Christian believing what I'm teaching to you. And so I've been the whole trek, the whole way, the whole long way around. I've been through it. I know it. I understand it. And um, I'd be happy. I'd love to spend time with you. I'm not just willing to. I'd love to. So keep that in mind. Well, last week we focused on two aspects of this. Jesus, the Son of Man, sitting on His throne of glory. And we focused on what Jesus called the regeneration. And we saw that the Bible tells us very plainly that Jesus sat on the throne of His glory 2,000 years ago when He ascended into heaven. Uh, the end of the Gospel of Mark tells us very plainly, and there's many other places that refer to that. And we also saw that the regeneration that Jesus refers to here is not the individual regeneration that Jesus discusses with Nicodemus so famously in John chapter 3. But the, the regeneration Jesus is talking about here is one that's not inside us, but one that we're inside it. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than the whole world. It's a cosmic regeneration encompassing all of creation. And that regeneration began when Jesus assumed his throne. And then as his, great, his first great kingly act poured out the Holy Spirit in this, into this world. Now today I want to focus on the whole concept of the saints reigning with Christ. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the first generation disciples sitting on thrones and judging Israel. And as we look at that, I want to consider three things. When do the saints begin to reign? How do the saints reign? And how do the saints overcome Satan? When do the saints begin to reign? How do the saints reign? And how do the saints overcome Satan? Well, taking up this first question, when do the saints begin to reign? The scripture is clear that the saints began to reign with Christ in the first century. And I, I could turn to a lot of verses on this, and we don't have time to turn to a lot of verses. I want to turn to one verse, which may be one that I, I don't think would commonly be turned to. This is in the book of Revelation. 
And you may be thinking, oh, well, Revelation, who in the world knows what that means? No, I'm not going to talk about the vision part. I want to talk about the very first part of the letter, the salutation. Before the vision, before any stuff that John's talking about that's going to be happening, where he's, he's greeting the churches and talking about what is already the truth. He writes to them, he says, John to the seven churches in Asia Minor, grace to you and peace. This is very common. This is the way all the epistles open. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now, are those things already true at the time he's writing? Is Jesus Christ already the firstborn from the dead? Yes, he is. Is he already the faithful witness? Yes, he is. Okay, listen to the third thing he says about who Jesus Christ already is. The ruler of the kings of the earth. This has nothing to do with the vision. This has to do with who this letter is from. It's from Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, the faithful witness, and the ruler 2,000 years ago, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus Christ is already sitting on the throne of His glory. The regeneration, the cosmic regeneration, has already begun. And He goes on to say, He adds, he adds in a little doxology here, To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Who's He talking about there? Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings. Not will. Has. Has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. This is already an accomplished reality when this letter is written. That's already passed. Has nothing to do with the vision. It has to do with what Jesus Christ has already accomplished. Like I said, there's a lot of verses we could look at, but I think this is pretty powerful if you think about it. Second question. Now, I'm moving quickly here because I really want to spend our time and emphasis today on the third question. How do the saints overcome Satan? Because I think it's so practical for us today. So I'm kind of racing here. Second question. How do the saints reign? The saints reign by overcoming. And this word for overcome or overcoming, it's, it's the idea of conquering. That's what it means. The saints conquer, but they don't just conquer. There's different ways to conquer. You can conquer a foe that stands no chance. Okay? You can be a great superior power and conquer a little, a little bitty foe that presents no real threat. That's not the kind of conquering that's in view with this word overcoming. It's the conquering of what would appear to be in every way a much more powerful foe. It's like Israel coming into the land of Canaan. God keeps emphasizing who's in the land of Canaan. You know, it's not empty. It's occupied. Not by one nation more powerful than you. Seven nations, each of which are more powerful and numerous than you. God keeps telling them that. I'm giving you this land, just want you to know, it's occupied by seven nations more powerful and numerous from you. Okay, 
What they did under Joshua is the idea of overcoming. It is conquering a foe that in every way, by every human measure, is far more powerful. And that's how the saints reign, by overcoming. Why do the saints reign this way? Because that's how Jesus assumed his throne. That's how he reigned. He overcame. He was opposed. He was persecuted. He took Satan's worse. He was ultimately martyred. And throughout, he entrusted himself to God. He remained faithful to God unto death. And therefore, in the darkest hour, God vindicated him. God turned the tables. And he exalted Jesus. And he put down Jesus' foes. And God gave a period of mercy there for the foes of Jesus to turn. And those who did turn, we're talking about the events of the first century here, those who did turn in faith, those who yelled out, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, we will not have this man to reign over us. Those same people who turned in faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance toward God received salvation, received eternal life. But those who didn't, those who did not receive what was in God's outstretched hands, but hardened themselves again and again and again, ultimately, they came under historical judgment. First judgment they came over is God's historical judgment. It was in the events leading up to and including the military siege of Judea and Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in which, I mean, probably over a million uh, Jews dying there. So they came under God's historical judgment first, and now they await eternal judgment on the last day. It's not either or. What is it, historical or is it last day eternal? It's not either or. God doesn't have to work with either or. God works with both. He works now. He works then. And so the first century disciples understood that this was to how they were to receive the kingdom just like Jesus did. By overcoming, by entrusting themselves to God, by remaining faithful to God in the midst of hardship and opposition and persecution and even martyrdom. Till God vindicated them, as He often does at the darkest hour. And He put down their foes, either through converting them or by bringing them under historical judgment with the specter of eternal judgment awaiting. And they understood this not only because of the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also because this pattern was spelled out in a number of places in Scripture. I want to quickly give you two of them. We don't have time to just dig all the way down through them. I urge you to write these references down because they make good material for you to come back to. They make good uh, family worship material. One of these is Daniel 7. Now, we looked at that last week because that's the passage where Daniel, his vision, sees the Son of Man. It's the favorite Son of Man uh, vision, and it is the vision that Jesus is calling to mind every time he calls himself what he always called himself, the Son of Man. That's the one where the Son of Man comes on the cloud before the Ancient of Days and receives from the Ancient of Days uh, a kingdom, an everlasting dominion, 
the one, the kingdom that will never be destroyed, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Now, here's the interesting thing. A few verses after that, in the same vision, the, ki the kingdom is given to the saints, the saints of the Most High. And it says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. Which kingdom? Well, the same one. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve Him. That same kingdom that Jesus has received, the saints receive. Everything that's true of Jesus is true of us. That's how He saves us. But it doesn't start just with our sins being taken away. It doesn't end there, rather. Because Jesus has been exalted and justified and raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God, we are too. The whole thing is true of us because it's true of Christ. He reigns, therefore we reign. That's the picture. But in between these two events, Daniel 7 shows the saints taking it in the teeth. They're being persecuted by earthly powers and rulers, just like Jesus was before he was vindicated. It's the same pattern. And all of this, of course, is talking about events in the, the first century. The second major passage, and this one gives us a little bit more detail, but it's the same story, is Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, we're told that Jesus, the male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, we know who that is, Psalm 2, that's Jesus. We're told that he is caught up to, the, to God and his throne. Well, what's that? That's the ascension. That's what Daniel saw in Daniel 7. That's the ascension of Jesus into heaven. He's caught up to God in his throne. Now, let me just mention that this ought to be a major reset in the whole way that we typically view uh, Revelation, which we think is talking about stuff that's still in the future. This is Revelation 12, right in the middle of the book. And it's talking about the ascension of Jesus. Hello, that ought to be a major reset and a, and a symbol that we need to rethink the ways that we temple, uh, typically understand the book. So we have the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus there. And the next thing that happens is there is a conflict between Jesus and Satan in heaven. You may wonder what Satan is doing in heaven. Well, Satan's the th I mean, heaven's the throne room of God. It's the courtroom of God. It's where Satan comes. We see it in, in, in the book of Job. It's there in the throne room. Why does he get to come there? Why does Satan, the enemy of God, get to come there? Well, because he has a case. And if you have a case, you get to come into court. And he gets to come into court and he gets to accuse. He gets to accuse Adam and Eve and all of mankind. And he has a case. And, you know, we normally think of Satan, we know he's the accuser, and we normally think of, oh, well, he's this big slanderer, he's a liar, he's a false accuser. That's the problem with him. That's not the problem with Satan. The problem with Satan is that his accusations are true. That's the problem. And the problem is his accusations being true, that mankind, which is supposed to image God, instead imaged Satan... Instead of believing God's word, believed Satan's word. Instead of following God and obeying God, followed Satan and obeyed him. It gave Satan a legal claim over mankind as his disciple, his image, and over the earth which God had placed under mankind. So that's what he's doing in the throne room of God. He's got a case until now.
until the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because with the person and the work of Jesus, His death, His resurrection, Jesus now, a man, has perfectly obeyed God and followed God and trusted God. Not in a paradise, but in a wilderness and in an accursed world with a cursed race. And now Jesus has a superior claim over mankind and the earth. Case, Satan has no more case. Well, guess what happens when you have no more case? You get thrown out of court. You don't get to hang around the courthouse when you have no case. And Satan doesn't want to leave, so what happens? He gets thrown down the courthouse steps. He is thrown out of heaven, we're told, because no place was found for him any longer. Now, that's biblical language for Jesus has conquered and case and Satan, you're out. But we're told that he was thrown down to earth. Doesn't mean he's powerless. Doesn't mean he's without any activity. Doesn't mean he doesn't have a plan. And we're told he was enraged and he went to make war against the saints of the Most High. This is all in the first century. But we're told in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, that the saints overcame him. A lot of this story is spelled out in Revelation. A lot of them are dying. They're taking it in the teeth. They're being crushed. But they overcame him. They overcame him. And there's that word again, overcome. It's a word that Jesus says to every one of the seven churches that he writes to in the book of Revelation. He speaks to each one of them. He speaks to them personally. He speaks to them in detail. He speaks to them about fruit, good fruit that they're bearing for God. He talks to them about problems they've got. And some of them, he gets pretty stern with them. But the theme that he comes back to for every single one of them is to overcome, overcome, overcome. In other words, the reason why I'm encouraging you in the things you're doing right, the reason why I'm talking to you sometimes sternly about the things that you aren't doing, that you should be doing, or things you're doing wrong, is because I want you to overcome. And Jesus makes seven promises to the disciples who overcome in the midst of all this hardship and persecution. And it's interesting that these seven promises all cluster around the same three blessings that Jesus holds forth in our text in Matthew 19. The blessing of eternal life. The blessing of special blessedness. I don't know what else to call it. The blessing of special blessedness. In other words, of special intimate communion and a blessedness from God. And finally, the blessing of reigning from Christ. Listen, listen of reigning with Christ. And listen to these blessings. The blessing of eternal life, Revelation 2.7. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. Revelation 2.11. To him who overcomes, he shall not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 3.5. He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father. The blessing of special blessedness, of special intimate communion with God and special sustenance from God as we go through this world. Revelation 2.17, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Very personal, very intimate. Revelation 3.12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven, which in Hebrews chapter 13 is identified as the church, by the way. And in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 is identified as the bride of Christ, which is the church. He says, and I will write on him my new name. All of this very special and personal blessedness. And finally, the blessing of reigning with Christ. To him, this is Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father, past tense, on his throne. Revelation 2.26. He who overcomes and keeps he who overcomes and keeps my ways and my works until the end to him I will give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel as I also have received from my father same three blessings all attached to overcoming conquering a much greater force in the name of and by the power of Jesus. So the, the significance of the first century is that it shows us a pattern and a picture of what the reign of Christ and what the reign of the saints look like. It shows us the very first picture we get of what the riot, uh, a Christ rod of iron looks like. And it does not look like a great piece of metal coming down out of the sky and whacking somebody over the head. It looks like economic distress. It looks like political unrest. It looks like social and cultural decline. It looks like natural disasters. It looks like revolution and military conquest. It looks like stuff that CNN would never attach the name of God to or any divine source that's what the rod of iron looks like. Now we know Jesus is in charge of these things. It also shows what it looks like for Satan to make war against the saints and for the saints to overcome him. And that's what I really want to focus on now as we come down the home stretch and try to make application. How do the saints overcome Satan? Revelation 12:11 tells us by three things. The same way the saints in the first century did. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. By these three things, they overcame a vastly superior foe by all human reckoning. Let's consider them. They overcame him by the blood of Jesus. Consider this. They overcame him, but the first thing, the first of these three, is not something the saints did at all. The first and primary thing by which they overcame Satan is nothing they did. It's something Jesus did. He shed his blood. A question we often don't think about is where did the blood of Jesus go? 
we usually speak in terms of like the blood of Jesus coming on us and the blood of Jesus covers us well, I mean, that's true but we think of the blood of Jesus coming on us but you know the Bible tells us where it went John chapter 19 one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear he's on the cross immediately blood and water came out where'd it go went on the ground went on the earth and there is deep and wonderful theology here and I would urge you to write down these references this would make great stuff for for some family devotions and worships or personal devotions great stuff for fathers to go with your kids through the Bible with in the typology of the Old Testament tabernacle the people were cleansed on the Day of Atonement when the blood was sprinkled where on them no when it's sprinkled on the mercy seat in the holiest of holies the mercy seat is the golden slab solid gold which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant a golden slab which had golden cherubim rising up out of it with their wings outstretched so the blood was sprinkled on this mercy seat the seat of mercy the place of mercy and it was sprinkled there not only to cleanse the people, but also to cleanse the tabernacle itself. So we have the, the people have dirtied themselves. They've defiled themselves by their sin. They've also defiled the tabernacle and made it dirty. And they're both cleansed when the blood is, is sprinkled on the mercy seat. It gets even more interesting. We're told that God's presence dwelt above the mercy seat. Exodus 25 22. Oh, by the way, let me give you the references that talk about the Day of Atonement and where the blood is sprinkled. That's Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Leviticus 16, 15 and 16. Okay. God's presence dwelt above the mercy seat. You will find that at Exodus 25, 22. God tells Moses, I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the Ark of the Testimony. So the picture we get is that God is enthroned, sitting between the cherubims on their wings. Now, think about that. What's that representing? Well, the Bible tells us that God's throne is where? Well, we already saw it in Revelation 12. God's throne is in heaven, right? Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Okay, so God is pictured as seated in between the cherubim on their wings. And yet, that's His throne, and yet His throne is in heaven. Okay, keep that in mind. Now, the mercy seat is where God's feet rested. If he's sitting on the wings of the cherubim, his feet are going to be on the mercy seat. And therefore, God, uh, David called the mercy seat God's footstool. That's how he called it. You'll find that in 1 Chronicles 28.2. He said, I wanted to build a house for the Lord, a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant, and for the footstool of our God. So the mercy seat is God's footstool. And that is where God's people are always pictured as worshiping God, typologically speaking. Psalm 132, verse 7. 
Let us go into God's tabernacle. Let us worship at His footstool. In other words, let us worship at the mercy seat. Let us worship at God's place of mercy. Let us worship where the blood goes. Now that's all typological. But where is the footstool really? We already figured out that the throne of God is really in heaven. Well, where then is the footstool of God really? God tells us in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. So if the earth is God's footstool, that means the earth is God's mercy seat. It is the place of God's mercy. And where does the blood go? On the mercy seat. And where did the blood of Jesus go? On the earth. The blood of Jesus went on the earth, cleansing it and cleansing us of our sins. The earth is where we worship God in Jesus' name. The earth is where God's enemies, Christ's enemies, will be made His footstool, that is to say, His worshipers, by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise that God makes to Jesus in Psalm 110, verse 1. The first century saints took Satan's worst, and they overcame him by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus has gone on to the earth, and there is nothing that Satan can do about it. The earth belongs to Jesus now. The blood of Jesus has gone into the earth, and there is nothing Satan can do about its cleansing power. The earth has been sanctified. It's been set apart for God. It's been reclaimed by Christ. And the Holy Spirit is taking it inch by inch, bringing it under the salvation and the lordship of Christ. And mankind has been sanctified set apart for God. And the Holy Spirit is taking it sinner by sinner, bringing it under the salvation and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that Satan or any tyrant or any totalitarian regime or empire, there is nothing any lie or any persecution can do about this. This was their trust. Nothing what they could do, what Jesus had already done. This was their trust. This was their hope. This was their surety. This was their anchor within the veil. This is what they knew. It's our trust. It's our hope. It's our surety. It's our anchor within the veil. This is what we know. Whatever happens, whatever you're going through, whatever I'm going through, whatever your family's going through, whatever our country's going through, whatever the church is going through, if we're taking it in the teeth, if we're being lined up to die for Jesus' name, you know what? The blood of Jesus has been shed, and it's gone on the earth. And there's nothing Satan can do about it. And nothing will ever be the same. Ever. 
That's what it means when it says they conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And it is the way that we also must conquer. It is the way we must overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by what Jesus has already done, by the victory He has already won. Second, we're told that they overcame Satan by the word of their testimony. Now, when you look at Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13 and 14, kind of continue the same story, you start seeing the significance of saying that they overcame by the word of their testimony because what we're also told is uh, Satan's, one of Satan's main weapons against the church and against the disciples was lies. Lies. We're told that the dragon spewed out all this water, this great river of water comes out of his mouth. Well, that's a picture of lies. Lies going everywhere. We're told that there's lies, lies that are being perpetrated by false leaders, uh, false uh, leaders in the civil government. And there are lies that are pointing away from the Lord Jesus Christ and His person to work in exalting someone else or something else as Lord of the world. Caesar's Lord, the empire's Lord. And we're also told that there were false leaders in the church who were lying. False leaders within Israel, religious leaders who are lying. They're supporting the same lies the culture is telling. Undermining the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of His victory and His Lordship. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He goes on to say that he's a murderer from the beginning. What did Satan use to murder our first parents and bring the human race under bondage? A lie. Satan kills by lying. We die by believing what he says. Satan holds us in bondage. He holds people in bondage by lying to them. And all of these lies, you can look in, in the book of Revelation, it talks about it. All these lies have to do, the common theme is... They deny the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in whole or in part. They either say, He wasn't born of a virgin, He didn't die an atoning death, and He wasn't raised from the dead. They either say that, that's denying it in whole, or they deny it in part by saying, well, He did, but it's going to be a Jewish ethnic type of a kingdom and salvation, and that kind of thing. It's not really going to change the way the world's been working. Or he's only claiming the spiritual side of life. He's not claiming all of life. He's just taking care of our sins. He's not really Lord. You know, he's not claiming everything. Some way or another, it's trying to eviscerate the victory and the Lordship of Jesus Christ and therefore his salvation over all things. But his lies are especially directed toward the church. They're directed toward everybody, but they're especially directed toward the church. Because if Satan can infect the church with lies, he just snuffed out the light of the world. Because the only light, the only truth, is coming from the disciples. It's coming from the church. And therefore, that's place number one where Satan wants to get lies. And one of the main lies he used in the first century is one that he's using still very effectively today. Of course, he's using all the ones I've described very effectively, but this one particularly. And it was this. When the disciples looked at the promises of Jesus, 
When the disciples looked at these claims in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth belong to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them, teach them. You know, it's such a glorious picture. It's like, yeah, let's go. You know, it's going to be great. It's going to be glorious. And then it's like, it's not glorious. They're on the losing end. They're being crunched. They're not winning. It doesn't look like Jesus is reigning. And it certainly doesn't look like the saints are reigning. There's such an incongruity, such a disconnect between what Jesus told them and what the Scriptures say and what they're seeing. And so, this is what the whole book of Hebrews is dealing with. You had massive numbers of Christians, particularly Jewish Christians, who were turning away. They believed in Jesus, but now they're going... We thought he was the winner. We thought he was on the winning side. We thought we were on the winning side. But now it's becoming increasingly clear we're on the losing side. He must not be who we thought he was. And the book of Hebrews speaks directly to this disconnect. And in chapter 2, in the book of Hebrews, it says this. Number one, God has placed all things under Jesus' feet. And then he says it again. Number two, God has left nothing that is not put under him. In other words, he says it forwards and he says it backwards so nobody can miss it. Everything has been put under Jesus. Nothing has been omitted. But then he goes on to explain the disconnect. But now we do not yet see with our eyes, all things put under Him. They have all been put under Him, but we don't see them immediately uh, recognizing His Lordship. We don't see the results of that. And this is why Jesus gave us those parables of the kingdom about the mustard seed and the pinch of leaven. You know? Because it's a process. And we should be grateful that this is a process, a very long-term process. Not that we should ever be grateful that kings or anyone else fail to embrace Jesus as king, but we should be grateful that Jesus' kingdom consists in saving the world and in saving mankind. That doesn't mean that every last person who has ever lived in the history of the world will be saved. Yes, there are those who harden themselves, who turn away. But it does mean that Jesus is going to win in history, not just in eternity. It does mean that the day is going to come when He returns and puts down the last enemy death. That He's going to present to His Father a perfected kingdom. And we are going to look out and we are going to see a saved world. A saved earth and a saved mankind, a saved man, uh, humanity. And that's what the fact that this is a process means. That Jesus isn't giving up on the earth. He's not conceding the earth. He's not throwing it away. He's not going to roll it up in like a piece of trash and throw it away. He's not going to throw it in the fire and burn it all up and start all over. He's not going to wipe out the human race. He's not doing it all at one time. The fact that the blood goes on the ground 
is pointing to the same thing as this process, this long, slow process that seems way too long and way too slow for us. It means that the kingdom of Jesus is about saving. That's what it's about. It's not about stomping on people in the face. It's about saving the world. And so we should be very, very grateful and thankful for that. So remember that when we're impatient and we want to see everything right now. And the final thing that we're told by, uh, that the saints overcame by, is that they did not love their lives unto death. They did not love their lives unto the death. Now what that means is that they love themselves, as God commands us, love your neighbor as yourself. can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. They love themselves, but they were not in love with themselves. They were not in love with their lives. They were not in love with their happiness. They were not in love with their immediate lives and how things were going for them. They were not in love with those things. They were in love with Christ. And I don't mean that in some hokey way. So their lives, sure, who wants to suffer? If you want to suffer... If you want to be a martyr, if you're itching to be a martyr, something's wrong with you. Seriously. But, if you would not rather die than deny the Lord Jesus Christ, something's wrong with us. We normally don't think these ways because we've had such a long period in our country where that would be unthinkable. I don't know. Could be heading into some pretty rough times. They love Christ more than their own lives. They love Christ more than their own lives. And so we read about uh, Satan controlling the different powers within the church and outside of the church to have the saints put in prison, to have them killed and martyred. And so Revelation chapter 13 and 14, it remarks about the patience and the faith of the saints. Patience and faith while suffering. Patience and faith by going to prison. Patience and faith uh, while dying for Jesus. It says, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What makes the enemies of God, those who place the children of God in captivity, who hate God, who hate Jesus, who harden themselves against Him, what makes them who are throwing people in prison, what makes them go into captivity? What makes those who are killing the saints themselves be brought under judgment and killed? The patience and the faith of the saints while being killed and imprisoned. That's what? And this picture that we get throughout Scripture is that just when the foes of God think that they're conquering, when they're slaughtering God's people, it's like, whoops. 
you just made a big mistake. You just made a big mistake. Because now their blood has been added to the blood of Jesus. And their blood says amen to the blood of Jesus. And you're never going to overcome that. You're never going to overcome that. It's just like when the Philistines captured the ark. They routed Israel and captured the ark. One. Whoops. Whoops. You just swallowed the wrong pill. This is what Jesus uses to turn the tables and to bring his people into ascendancy. And not every generation is like this. There are times of great peace. There are times of great blessing. There are times when God's people are riding on the heights of the earth, as he promises. Okay? And that presents its own challenges. We still have to overcome. Sometimes success is harder to overcome than defeat. When, it, when there's defeat and persecution going on, at least the lines are clear. When things are going great, the lines aren't always clear. God had to warn his people. He said, I'm going to make you ride on the heights of the earth in the land of Canaan. And he said, uh, you're going to still have to overcome. And this is what you're going to have to overcome. When everything's great, you're going to want to forget about me. When everything's great, you're going to think it's due to you. Instead of the fact that I love you. You're going to have to overcome that. So there's an overcoming we have to do when things are great. And there's an overcoming that we have to do when things are really, really, really tough. But overcome we must. And overcome we can only do by three things. By the blood of the Lamb. By the word of our testimony. We have the truth. And we must confess the truth. And we must speak the truth concerning Jesus Christ inside the church and outside the church. And thirdly, we must not love our lives unto the death. I heard a loud shout in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.